In this episode, Einstein tackles a loose seal, Sir Isaac Newton buys a vowel, and Noah gets stuck in a cat flap. Welcome to Fax Machine. I'm Rob, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Noah. Hello. And Emily. Hey. And this week, we're in our usual spots sharing facts about the non-famous inventions of the rich and famous. They say necessity is the mother of invention, but she may have had a brief and sordid affair with these inventors to beget such odd invention progeny. The three of us will take turns presenting and discussing each of our tales of the uncelebrated works of celebrated figures, and then we'll wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. Noah. This week I learned that Isaac Newton is said to have invented the cat flap. Is that a dance? <laughs> How would that go? How would the cat flap go? Just like... Yeah, so so okay. So anyway, uh, basically Isaac Newton, you know, everyone knows what Isaac Newton is, right? He invented Cohen, the fig Newton? Yeah. <laughs> when the fig <laughs> dropped from the tree and hit him on the head. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, he co-invented calculus uh, with Leibniz and, uh, of course, figured out a bunch of rules about optics and other things as well. Um, but there's this really <laughs> funny story, um, which apparently is like an early example of a urban legend, actually. And it's the story that Isaac Newton had a pet cat in his dorm room at Cambridge. Um, and he loved this cat. And so he, he made it like a little hole in like the wall so the cat could come and go as he pleased. Hmm. So then right. this cat has kittens... Uh, like a whole litter of kittens, and he thinks it'd be this really cute idea if he cut like a little smaller hole next to the main cat door, and that way the little kittens could have a place to enter and exit the room. However, obviously, <laughs> when the kittens, when the when the cat entered the room, the kittens just followed through the larger hole, <laughs> and so he right. reportedly <laughs> felt really stupid. Um, I this is almost certainly not true. Um, it is. It has a bit, little bit of a complicated history. Um, the first, uh, the first known <laughs> source of it was from 1863, which was uh, considerably after he would have died. And it's in it's in a, it's in an article called "Random Readings: Philosophy and Common Sense." Um, and it starts the the anecdote starts here. The great philosopher had a pet cat and a kitten, which he harbored in his study, but becoming tired of opening the door for them to go in and out, he hit upon the following contrivance. He cut in his door a large hole for the cat to go out in, and a small door for the kitten. He failed to remember that what the stu- <laughs> Sorry. He failed to remember what the stupidest bumpkin would have remembered. <laughs> that the large hole through which the cat passed might be made use of by the kitten as well. Having provided the holes, he waited with pride to see the creatures pass through them for the first time. As they arose from the rug before the fire where they had been lying, the great mind stopped in some sublime calculation. The pen was laid down, and all but the greatest man watched them intently. They approached the door and discovered the provision made for their comfort. The cat went through the door by the large hole provided for her, and instantly the kitten followed her through the same hole. And that is in all caps. (laughs) And then this amazing line at the end of the story. As ministers are Constantly charged with the same want of common sense, it may be consoling to find ourselves in company with the poets and philosophers. 
So um, okay. they, it's a great story, but it is mentioned there uh, that this is the only place they'd ever seen that story. There are a couple other things. Um, two different biographers of Isaac Newton cite accounts that Newton kept, quote, neither cat nor dog in his chamber. Before that, uh, a member of Newton's alma mater, Trinity College, uh, this was J.M.F. Wright, reported the same story but didn't so- cite it um, in his 1827 memoir, which is sl- only about 100 years after Isaac Newton had died, uh, and added, quote, whether this account be true or false, indisputably true it is. There are in the door to this day two plugged holes of the proper dimensions for the respective egresses of cat and kitten. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's very interesting, but okay. possibly apocryphal, even probably. Um, but amazingly, though, there is a true story involving a famous person who chafed against the rules on pets while at Trinity College, Cambridge, and that is uh, Lord Byron. Ooh. Um, and of he he, <laughs> he kept a tame bear. <laughs> in his dorm at Trinity College, um, be- out of resentment for the rules that forbade keeping dogs, and he was a lo- he loved animals. He wanted a dog, but basically the rules said he couldn't, so he got a bear because they didn't explicitly prohibit bears. <laughs> um, uh, and and to this day, there is a hole plugged in the wall of the right to the Is that for the papa bear, the mama bear, the baby? <laughs> and then Goldilocks. Yeah, the bigger one, of course. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but no, the best part about this is he wrote in a letter to his friend Elizabeth Pigeot, um, quote, I have got a new friend, the finest in the world, a tame bear. When I brought him here, they asked me what I meant to do with him. And my reply was, he should sit for a fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> but he barely passed his classes. Oh, oh goodness. I'm just kidding. He graduated summa cub laude. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure his roommates found him unbearable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> So, just, just a little, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, was, was he a French bear? No. Claude? <laughs> Do you guys remember the story? There was that bear, uh, I think it was like Winnipeg, the bear, the oh, namesake yeah. of Winnipeg. Oh, yeah. like, yeah, didn't yeah. he go to war? Or no, no, he stayed in the zoo, but there was another bear, I think, that we talked about that, they that like to went war? to war in France against the Nazis. And like, I think it's leg, I mean, it like came back with like only one leg or something. <laughs> I do not with remember only that. With one bear. leg or with three legs? I know I, oh, good point. No, I'm sorry. It lost one leg. Okay. I was imagining it standing upright. The, <laughs> but I, I'm pretty sure, like, because they brought Winnie, Winnipeg to London and then they were going to go to the front lines and they said that they couldn't bring him because it would be unfair. And my question oh, yeah, is still yeah. who is it unfair for? for? Who, yes. <laughs> That's what it was. Something like that. No, I remember this. Um, yes. <laughs> Um, so there, Isaac Newton, like one of the reasons I thought he was great for this is because, you know, he's incredibly famous, but unknown, I think, in, you know, in an interesting way where obviously we know, you know, that about his gravity and calculus and stuff like that. But even in, even in optics, one of his like great, you know, things that he's famous for, he, the way this experiment works, like in the legend of this experiment, was that uh, he made just like a hole in the side of his room or covered up most of his window or something like that. So like white light could stream through like a pinhole and then they held up a prism and then that prism separated the light into the visible spectrum. And then he uh, apparently either he marked it or he had a friend mark down where he saw the colors separated. Hmm. But like if you do this. Okay, so do you guys know what are the colors of like the rainbow? Uh, like, is oh. there an acronym for it? Anybody know that? Oh, I see where you're going with this, but yes. yes. So what's the yeah. what's the acronym? That's Roy G. Biv. And what does Roy yeah. G. Biv stand for? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Yep. Right. That's all. So the thing is, if you do this, there are only six colors <laughs> like that the human eye is perceiving. Like six, very clearly. There, indigo 
is a is like a contrivance of his desire to force this into his basically that he he thought that there should be seven sort of like colors in the spectrum so that it would fit the notes in the octatonic scale. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. And so he made this he made this like circle of where uh, each of the colors had um, like a, a, one of the different notes, like A, B, C, D, all the way through G. Mm-hmm. And then that each of them, and he had sort of, a, it was like at a pie chart basically. And that certain colors like orange and indigo represented half steps. Mm, like, okay. do you guys know, like uh, if you go, like it's just say like a like major, a major scale or whatever is, is whole step, whole step, half step, whole step, whole step, whole step, half step. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then the half steps were orange and violet or orange and indigo. Um, but it's just not really there. Um, and it was interesting that he just so desperately wanted this like harmony, uh, and just related to other things that it's just sort of an arbitrary comparison. That's so odd. Yeah. Also, Rujbuv, definitely not. Cabinet, so. <laughs> he was really thinking ahead. Yeah. Burn, <laughs> is it, is it red sharp or is it orange flat? That's... <laughs> <laughs> um, but I read or was talking to someone this week about light experiments and I don't know if this this was accredited to him in this conversation. I haven't looked it up. Apparently, he did the prism experiment, and he laid out an array of thermometers. And he let the light come through, and the light heated the thermometers. Oh. But he had made the array of thermometers bigger than where the visible light landed. And that's where he first hypothesized ultraviolet infrared light, because the temperature mm. was increasing, even though no wow. light was visibly hitting the thermometers. Very cool. And so I have, I, I have not confirmed if that's actually him that did that, but that's such a cool experiment yeah. that I actually yeah. want to do it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if he didn't do that, we should get on that immediately. Yeah, yeah. we need to prove ultraviolet uh, light. <laughs> but he, so Isaac Newton, I mean, just beyond this, he had tons of interest in the occult. Uh, and stuff like that, and that he, he basically, it feels like not that many people really know about when they think about Isaac Newton. And, like, one of the things he did was to try to extrapolate from things in the Bible about, like, when the world would end. Uh, and he has this very, you know, for Isaac Newton, interestingly, rigorously worked out um, <laughs> idea that the the world will not end before 2060. Oh, good. So he he's like, it's definitely not going to end before <laughs> 2060. Um so there's some other things like if you if you look at the works of Isaac Newton, like all the books he read, there's a really interesting one, which is the the chronology of ancient kingdoms amended, which is really interesting because oh. it's in there with like Principia Mathematica, with like and then like optics and then on fluxions, which is what he called I think like derivatives or something or oh. what I think he called that that was his word for derivatives, um, and so all these like mathematical treaties, and then there's one where it's eighty seven thousand words. And it details the rise and history of various ancient kingdoms. Um, and there are several passages that he's dedicated to Atlantis. Wow. And, and I think it's interesting because there's this, this one passage where he indicates that Homer's Ulysses, or Odysseus, left the island of Ogygia. Uh, and he's decided that it's 896 B.C., um, and in Greek mythology, Ogygia was the home of Calypso. And so, like, in mm-hmm. the Odyssey, um, basically, he, he, they're always talking about how Odysseus was having this really hard time. He was, like, out on the sea, get, you know, can't get back home to Ithaca. And then he spends seven of those, like, ten or so years just on the island of this beautiful yeah, nymph who, like, right? like freaking yeah. loves him. And, <laughs> um, but he thinks that because Calypso was the daughter of Atlas, and Atlas is the namesake of Atlantis, mm. that he thinks that this reference implies that there was an Atlantis where he was kept on this island that, you know, Homer called Agigia. 
Um, and he was kept there one year for every color of the rainbow. Yes, it <laughs> makes so much sense. <laughs> so, so the last thing is even among like the things he's famous for, he he puts a lot of magic into. Um, and and this is like sort of uh, you know I haven't talked too much about his like actually crazy occult stuff and his alchemy, which I feel like has been talked about elsewhere. But um, so basically, he thought that. Even this is the discoverer or the like, you know, the discoverer of universal gra- gravitation, right? He thought that um, God had to actively intervene to prevent the stars from falling in on each other. Um, he, he wrote in uh, private correspondence that tis inconceivable that inanimate brute matter should, without the mediation of something else which is not material, operate upon and affect other matter without mutual contact. And he actually warned against using, like, his law of gravity to look at the universe in sort of mechanistic terms. Um, And he said, This most beautiful system of the suns, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called the Lord God, Panto Creator. He decided to slip into Greek there. Or universal (laughs) ruler. Um... And opposition to godliness is atheism in profession and idolatry in practice. Atheism is so senseless and odious to mankind that it never had many professors. Wow. And Man. just to wrap up, I there's so many more things he said that sort of like undermine this this sort of common notion he is as this sort of like rationalist. Um, and it's that um, John Maynard Keynes, the economist, wrote... Newton was not the first of the age of reason. He was the last of the age of magicians. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. So there's a lot, lot there to explore. burn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I kind of like the cat flap fashion that, well, I guess, apocryphal story. And that at the very least, it's a parable to sort of be like, even this guy who professed <laughs> to know everything about pretty much everything for like variably founded reasons like you know we can take him down a peg by perpetuating the story that he lacked common sense and thought a small cat would go through a small door (laughs) (laughs) well i mean obviously that that door is my size (laughs) (laughs) that's how that works so regarding your fact which was great i basically disregarded all the isaac newton stuff in favor of cats because i love cats (laughs) i was like i'm gonna read about cat and cat inventions instead um so in looking into other technologies kind of spawned of a desire to um sort of like ease coexistence with cats and all of their quirky habits. Um, so when you think of like annoying things that cats do, lovely annoying in my opinion, um, they knock glasses off tables and drop dead rodents in undesirable places. Um, but they also wreak havoc on keyboards. Mm-hmm. If anybody here has had <laughs> yeah. a cat, you've had experience with that. And this can have very unfortunate consequences. Uh, the most extreme example that at least I've heard of actually befell Andrew Lloyd Webber, <laughs> composer of musicals such as The Phantom of the Opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, and ironically, as you'll find out, Cats. Right. Huh. Um, because in 2007, when he was composing the score for Love Never Dies, which was a sequel to The Phantom of the Opera, uh, Otto, his Turkish van cat, leapt onto the keys of his electric piano and pressed a button that instantly deleted all of the music that he'd composed. Oh, oh no. God. Just gone in one <laughs> fell soup of a paw. Um, but that cat this, is a hero. <laughs> I, so I'm inclined to agree because, like, and I say this as like a very deep, like, fan of the Phantom of the Opera, but despite the setback, Love Never Dies actually did hit Broadway in 2010, um, though it flopped pretty hard compared to its predecessor. Cat so. flop. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Too slow. Cat flap. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think Otto had the right idea there. But anyways, um, so regarding this issue of cats pressing computer keys, uh, I stumbled upon a piece of software 
called PawSense that is designed to detect kitties typing on your computer and then <laughs> freeze the keyboard before he or she can ruin your life and or deadlines. Wow. So the way that it works is that cat's paws are typically larger than individual keys in a keyboard. So the software runs its algorithm to detect cat-specific combinations, forces, and also timing of keystrokes. And then upon detecting a cat typing signature, <laughs> uh, halts input from the keyboard. That's such a waste That's... of time. But it's... <laughs> Oh, just just wait. It's marvelous. <laughs> so, so upon freezing the keyboard, uh, the, it elicits this pop-up um, that just says in all capital letters, cat-like typing detected, <laughs> and includes a text box with the prompt, you can exit this window by typing the word human inappropriately um, in the example text in like a screen cap of this pop-up on their website. Uh, the text just reads, <laughs> so not human. Um, but another feature of this program uh, where it actually gets a little Pavlovian is that um, as part of this response, it also plays a sound for the computer speakers to deter your cat from future keyboard meddling. Um, so it includes, <laughs> that would be a good idea. Um, it does include some pre-programmed sounds, um, one of which is a harmonica, which the website says is a noise that cats dislike, though I couldn't find any source that corroborates that. Um, and my personal favorite, the other pre-programmed sound is a hissing noise so the computer hisses back at the cat basically i feel, I feel like, like i feel like they're going about this the wrong way they should just put up a flash up a picture of a cucumber <laughs> cat's like wow. or, or the oh sound of a cucumber <laughs> which would be can you give us your best cucumber right. imitation how was that whoa Fool. That nailed it good. nailed it damn um and I will say their frequently asked questions uh, portion of their website is as delightful as you'd expect. Uh, my personal favorite highlight. So they're also working on a second generation version of the software called BabySense because your progeny <laughs> can also mess up your shit. And they suggest that PawSense could be compatible if your baby pounds multiple keys with their grubby baby fists like cat paws <laughs> do. However, if your baby is of a more refined sensibility and prefers to press individual keys uh, from the website, PawSense will recognize that your baby is indeed a human. She or he is, you know. Um, notably, they also recommend that when adapting PawSense for anti-baby protection, which I'm now realizing in this case means a very different kind of protection than what that phrase would usually imply. What was it again? <laughs> anti-baby protection. <laughs> different kind. Uh, PawSense will not help you with the other one. Just a disclaimer, uh, you should turn off the noise deterrent feature, so when your baby is using PawSense, um, as from the website, you don't want to encourage your baby to dislike computers, do you? I didn't think so. Don't you want your baby to grow up to be a glamorous computer programmer or the next Bill Gates? So PawSense is really... <laughs> I like that they're distinguishing between glamorous computer programmers <laughs> and Bill Gates. Gates. <laughs> so, mutually exclusive circles in the Venn diagram. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. We love you. This just invokes a memory of a television show that I don't know if either of you ever watched. Um, children of the 90s would remember Freakazoid? Nope. Nope. Yeah. Okay. So I forget his real name, but he Freakazoid is a superhero. And the government in, the, in this universe, and I'm not sure what universe this is, but it's, it's Earth in the 90s. The government hides this super secret power in the internet. And the only way to access it is to type in this secret access code from any terminal and then hit the backspace key. And they're like, why would we hide it on the internet like this? And the general goes, what kind of fool would type in such a nonsense sequence and then delete the password? <laughs> and there's this kid like writing a term paper and his cat walks across the computer. Yes. He's like, oh, God damn. And like starts to backspace and he gets sucked into the computer and turned into a superhero called Freakazoid. Uh, 
Should have had past sense. <laughs> <laughs> This week, I learned that Henry Ford and George Washington Carver, both well-known for their contributions to automobile engineering and agricultural science, respectively, embarked on a little-known collaboration to produce a car made from soybeans. Hmm. Cool, what? right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just you wait. So the soybean car, as it's come to be known, was debuted in 1941 at an annual Dearborn Day Festival in Dearborn, Michigan, which is the headquarters of the Ford Motor Company, uh, even though the project had begun 12 years earlier. So Ford's motivations for such an undertaking were a few fold. Um, he generally had a pretty broad interest in soybean technology and uh, chemergy, which I'll explain in a little bit. Um, and I say a broad interest, but really, from what I could tell, it was more of a fixation on soybeans. Um, in the 30s, he began dedicating company resources to fully exploring the potential of the magic bean, as he called it, <laughs> which included building a dedicated soybean laboratory where they study formulations and applications of soy-based oils and also bioplastics for manufacturing, even developing a new method of extracting soybean oil that generated no waste. And he displayed this oil extractor at the 1938 Chicago World's Fair um, at a booth which only served as well uh, soy alternatives to cheese, bread, butter, milk, and ice cream to any reporters in attendance. Wow. This interest in soy was further strengthened by his friendship with George Washington Carver, who at the time was conducting agricultural research as a professor at the Tuskegee Institute. So Carver, although best known for his work with peanuts, uh, also studied the cultivation and application of soybeans, both towards the development of plant-based products, as well as the prevention of soil nutrient depletion through crop rotation techniques. And the two became friends and collaborators in the 30s, drawn together by their mutual passions for chemergy, which I mentioned earlier, which is sort of a branch of material science that they kind of came up with uh, that was at the interface of agriculture and industry, um, and also an interest in developing better manufacturing methods from sustainable resources. So over the years, the two made a habit of visiting and supporting each other's organizations. Um, Ford donated to Tuskegee, and Carver oversaw Ford's crops um, that he was growing on a company property in Georgia. Um, and as a cool anecdote that kind of is emblematic of their friendship as well, um, towards the end of uh, George Washington Carver's life when he was um, getting older and infirm. Um, Ford actually donated funds to install an elevator in his apartment building so that he could kind of live more comfortably. Mm, yeah. um, altogether, the soybean car project was an ideal outlet for his interest in marrying the agricultural and the industrial, um, coupled with a need for alternate sources of materials. So the project itself was managed by Lowell Overly and Robert Boyer, who were two young scientists at the Soybean Laboratory, um, with advising and oversight from Carver. And I just want to quote a little bit from Boyer. So he was the lead chemist on the project. He was 20 at the time that it started. Um, and I found this in a New York Times article that came out in 1941 with the debut of the car. And it's just, to me, very relatable for any young scientist who've had the experience of embarking on a risky project. Um, and the quote goes, we were dumb enough to try anything in those days. And it's like, <laughs> I say that probably twice a week. That's why you need anti-baby protection. <laughs> 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 totally different kind of experiment than what I had in mind, but I, I, I that's fair. <laughs> I also want to say that I'm surprised that this was a Ford motor cars project and not soy brew. Oh, I thought it would be a Soyota. <laughs> <laughs> that's so much better. I'm, I'm kind of proud of you guys for holding that in for so long. <laughs> well, that's an important That took habit. a lot of restraint. So about the soybean car itself. Um, so... 
Important to note, the frame and the 60-horsepower engine were still made of steel, but the body and fenders were comprised of 14 panels of quarter-inch thick plastic or bioplastic panels, specifically. Um, and the exact recipe for these panels has been lost to time. Uh, per the Henry Ford Museum, it contained cellulose fiber from soybeans, wheat, hemp, flax, and ramey. Um, however, Lowe Overly, one of the scientists I mentioned earlier, uh, has since claimed the panels consisted of a blend of soybean fiber, phenolic resin, and formaldehyde, which actually would have made the material more similar um, to the early synthetic plastic Bakelite. But that's neither here nor there. Um, the car was also a thousand pounds lighter than an entirely made uh, or entirely steel-made equivalent at the time. Um, and according to Ford, was more durable against acute force and damage. <laughs> yeah, and he well. actually demonstrated this by replacing the paneling on the trunk of his own car with one of these bioplastic panels, and then having public demonstrations where he would throw like an axe at it, basically, <laughs> <laughs> and the axe would hit the panel and then bounce back super dramatically, and everyone would be like, "Oh my god, this plastic's amazing." Um, I will is say, that, no, is, just, is that how they sounded? Just like that. We actually <laughs> Collectively, have, as a crowd in unison. Well, we have somebody on this <laughs> podcast who does a 1930s voice. Um, how would it sound? Please, Rob. Well, that there so is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the axe just bounced right back off. <laughs> how could it be so? <laughs> Um, so all of this sounds pretty great, but unfortunately, as World War II progressed, uh, plans for a second generation prototype and also larger scale manufacturing of the car, um, along with all auto manufacturing, were suspended. And so the project was abandoned and the prototype was actually destroyed. And I will say in researching this, I dredged up various sort of like hints of mystery and conspiracy theorizing surrounding this, surrounding this just in that like... Basically insinuating that all the materials weren't destroyed and the recipes weren't lost to time purely by accident, but rather um, because Ford's claims of how great this bioplastic was or what its true composition was were actually um, exaggerated compared to reality. <laughs> or and or will... it's amazing. And he, Ford, with no, his you know proclivities toward the Nazis, was just funneling it secretly toward Germany. <laughs> <laughs> The enemy of the pod, Ford. The, Ford Motor, the Ford Motor Corporation. Bring it on. We've got Bill Gates on our side. <laughs> Let him duke it out. See who wins. Um, though I will say that modern material science has yet to replicate his claims of that like level of strength with a soybean-derived polymer. So, um, I also think it kind of sounds like if they yeah. they said like they destroyed this car, did they eat it? <laughs> Just, and if they and if they like incinerated they just it, just dropped it in some water and it dissolved. <laughs> <laughs> but if they incinerated it or something like that, or broke it apart and buried it, it kind of reminds me of the Elon Musk thing where he said oh, <laughs> the you, Elon Musk perfect murder. You, you run someone over the soy car. <laughs> <laughs> you, so you put them in the car and you send them up and on then a SpaceX rocket <laughs> in a soybean car. <laughs> yeah, it's actually orbiting along with the yeah. <laughs> bright red Tesla. That's where it is. Um, <laughs> But regardless of what happened to the car, it was at the very least a cool and kind of ahead of its time idea, and still has a distinction of being the first car to be made with an all-plastic body. So I'd be remiss to talk about like this, you know, soybean car without talking about bioplastics today and renewable resources today. Um, so to set the scene, um, as we all know, though maybe without like these precise, staggering, depressing numbers, um, we've produced over 9 billion tons of plastic since the 50s, and about 200 million tons of that are in our ocean, um, with almost 10 million more like dropping into the ocean every year, and only about 10% of all of that gets recycled. So we have a lot of plastic floating around doing a lot of damage to the environment, and it's pretty terrible. 
Um, and one thing that was developed to remedy this, and that's still kind of in progress, are bioplastics. So that just means plastic made from a plant or other biological material and not petroleum, like typical plastics. And typically, they're also composed of 20% or more um, renewable materials as well. Um, so they do use fewer fossil fuels to produce, so have a smaller carbon footprint overall. Um, additionally, like, and I should, well... I'm going to mention this in a sort of measured way. They are biodegradable, which at a minimum means that microorganisms can break them down um, into water, CO2, and compost, whereas just plain old degradable plastics will just kind of disintegrate into smaller and smaller fragments called microfragments, and they're non-renewable. So they just kind of float around the environment and be gross and not return to nature. But what if I told you there was another way? (laughs) 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 So, 1930s Rob is here to stay, guys. <laughs> Sorry, because this is a very modern finding, so I don't know why I went back okay. to my, <laughs> my old-time voice. But there, there are a couple recent breakthroughs in terms of regular plastics, not specifically bioplastics, uh, and getting rid of them using organisms. And so does the name Galleria melanella mean anything to you guys? No. Nope. So it's actually it's just the honeycomb moth. Oh. Um but so there was a scientist who was collecting uh, uh, honeycomb moth larvae and put them in a plastic bag to bring them back to her lab. And she like put them to the side and then came back a few minutes later and they're all gone. And they had bored through the plastic bag. Oh. And so this led her to realize these things eat plastic. Oh. Sick. And so they are one of the putative species that might actually help reduce plastic waste because they can actually digest. And so the question was, did they just dissolve it or can they ingest it? And the studies seem to indicate from 2017, these moths eat and metabolize certain plastics. Wow. And That's that could be cool. really, really good. But how, how did they evolve this skill? <laughs> Yeah, I what, mean, what are, what are they supposed to be eating that is yeah, very like that plastic? Mimics plastic enough. Yeah, I have no idea because my institutional access is revoked. So <laughs> <laughs> can't, oh, I no. can't see. How do you, that's terrible. I know it's, it's just bad. a resounding is... thump on the paywall. But the other thing that's kind of big in the living things eating plastics world is Aspergillus, mm-hmm. which is the, the fungus. Yes, yeah. yeah, the fungus that can that, that can... kills you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not good for humans either. (laughs) Well, killing all the humans would reduce the amount of plastic we're putting in the environment. (laughs) (laughs) They're like they're they're anti-human, (laughs) anti-plastic organisms. One way to reduce the carbon footprint overall. Yeah, just (laughs) no more feet. (laughs) Take out all the people. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) Stop printing carbon feet. (laughs) (laughs) We thought three D printers would solve so many problems in the world, but they actually just hastened climate change. Uh, but as aspergillus can amazingly uh, digest polyurethane wow. in, in a very oh, short wow. order. Yeah, so that's it, very cool. It, it is a plastic-specific thing based on what the synthetic is. But there are more and more species we're finding accidentally eat plastic. Cool. That's Not to make anyone cool. feel good, like we haven't fixed anything, but <laughs> <laughs> but but new discoveries yeah. can herald in progress. Always and exciting. I, and I feel like these things are going to get loose and start eating the plastic things that we desperately need to keep our world going (laughs) at the moment. Like before we've managed to phase out all the plastic, a bunch of aspergillus will get loose and like eat all the (laughs) wiring in our cars or whatever. I don't don't know what's plastic. (laughs) All our milk will just be on the floor and I'll be there crying over spilled milk. milk. (laughs) (laughs) It's got to sit to cartons though. If you're in Canada, you're screwed because they have their milk in bags, right? For my, Yes. And I, I knew I shouldn't have put my moth larvae in those bags of milk. 
Okay, so this week I learned Einstein invented a better, safer, more efficient refrigerator, but he got scooped by a man named Midgley. So I, I found this fact actually through uh, science writer Sam Keen in his, uh, his book, um, Caesar's Last Breath, which is a really interesting book about uh, the chemistry of the gases in the air. Uh, and he has an anecdote in there about Einstein inventing a better refrigerator. And it was actually not just Einstein. And, and as the reports go, it was really mostly the work of a man named Silzard or Zillard. <laughs> Polish. Um, How is it spelled? S-Z-I-L-A-R-D. Perhaps, yeah. Okay. Um, so Zillard is probably the man who did most of the work uh, in making this particular type of refrigerator. Um and so it, it all stems from in 1926, there was, a, uh, there was a terrible accident in Berlin, and an entire family died. Um, and I'll read here a quote. This is from Wikipedia. They're motivated by contemporary newspaper reports of a Berlin family who had been killed when a seal in their refrigerator failed and leaked toxic fumes uh, into their home. What was a seal yeah. doing in their refrigerator? <laughs> is that not what everyone thought right away? <laughs> when a seal in their refrigerator popped open the door and just flopped them to death. A loose seal? <laughs> Get him! He's so slippery. <laughs> um, so what they had used in refrigerators up until this point had been fairly lethal gases. Um, and it was because they were good at heat exchange and they built them into heat engines that did very specific things so they could remove heat from the refrigerator and then expel it uh, by transducing the heat through um, a pipe to some other metal or some heat sink. Um, and this, was, this is the, the basic principle of refrigeration is remove the heat and then get rid of it. Um, but they were using gases like um, sulfur dioxide, which is extremely toxic. And the, the idea is, as long as it's contained inside this little system, no big deal. Um, the problem is when the seal breaks or when there's gas exchange with the room you're in, uh, it will kill you. And so accidents like this were uncommon, but not uh, unheard of. And so Einstein set about, with Zillard, making a refrigerator that actually worked with no moving parts that didn't require electricity. And it was relatively efficient, but it used safer gases like butane and water in some instances. So I thought this fact was going to be a deep dive into how they came up with this idea and how sad it is that we didn't use it. And that's actually where I kind of pivoted a little bit. So I will tell you that it is, it is a kind of very smart thermodynamic machine that they invented using gases like butane, um, where, where gas would basically be gassed into a liquid, it would absorb heat, and then it would be kind of liquefied back out and separated, and then it'll go through that cycle over and over again at a constant pressure, doesn't require a fan, um, doesn't require pumps, and so it is a much more efficient machine in some ways, although it is uh, a little bit inefficient uh, like energy-wise. Uh, in terms of the energy you have to put into the heating block portion. However, the reason we don't use this refrigerator is because in the United States, um, a little something called Freon was invented. It's waiting for that. <laughs> yes. Okay. And so Freon was the invention of a man named Thomas Midgley. Thomas okay. Midgley Jr., to be precise. That bastard Midgley. And so <laughs> if you're joking, I want you to be serious because... <laughs> <laughs> so Thomas Midgley had, in the words of author Bill Bryson, quote, an instinct for the regrettable that was almost uncanny. <laughs> <laughs> and so he brought two gases, up, or he brought two chemicals upon humanity that have forever kind of changed the face of the world. One of them is Freon, and in its essence, he, he invented the class of chlorofluorocarbons. 
Um, oh, wow. And so that hole in the ozone layer, you can say, Midgley! <laughs> I knew it was right and shaking my fist. I didn't even know why, but I was like, this dude deserves it. <laughs> yeah, and so he, he was reacting to the same problems. Um, refrigerators in the 20s were uh, appallingly risky, uh, in a quote from the author Bryson again, um, because the gases sometimes leaked, and one leak from a refrigerator in a hospital in Cleveland in 1929 killed more than 100 people. Oh, wow. Um, so Midgley set out to try to fix that problem. Um, Midgley was also a little bit of a showman. And so upon the creation of Freon, he, he brought it on display before investors and the American Chemical Society. And he inhaled a big breath of Freon to prove that it was non-toxic. And he blew out a candle to prove it was not flammable. Um, so he, and then he was like, still does. That's not toxic. That'll be fine. Um, so he, he won a Priestley medal for this. Like he was a, a distinguished chemist and uh, like very good at what he was doing. Uh, unfortunately, the use of Freon and kind of the, the lack of safety testing, the lack of, sa- I wouldn't say the lack of, the safety testing was done was very narrow-minded as would it hurt humans in the immediate present, like in their immediate future. Yeah, just acutely. Yeah. And yeah. so and at the time, no one was really thinking about atmospheric science uh, in the way that they did even 20 and 30 years later. And so the huge hole in the atmosphere that was caused by these fluorocarbons was something we only realized much, much later. And so it's, a, it's an impressive legacy to have created uh, the refrigerant system that worked in the United States and around the world for about 50 years, uncontested, until CFCs were banned in the 1980s. And that would be bad enough if Midgley didn't then double down on his environmental unfriendliness with his other introduction to the world. Um, so I was having a conversation about this last week with my freshman year chemistry professor who I met in a bar. Wow. And we talked about cool. chemistry for about an hour. Um, and his wife, by the way, is is becoming the ACS president. I'm not oh, sure wow. if that's local or wow. national. She's like a very like uh, well-respected chemist in her own right. Yeah. Um, and so I was at a bar with two awesome chemists talking about chemistry. And he was talking about how much effort goes into getting aluminum, getting a pure element, making cans out of it, and then throwing it away after one use. Like, think about how much energy goes into getting a raw element. And he's like, people are idiots. Um, <laughs> but then he also said, and then all this junk with lead. And I was like, yeah, why is there lead in gasoline again? And he was like, yeah, and there's no good reason. It just, like, somebody thought it prevented knocking. And so when you put lead in, like, it sounded better for your car. That was Midgley. Oh, no. <laughs> Midgley put tetraethyl <laughs> lead in gasoline. <laughs> So now every time there was a gasoline leak in like the 1900s, there was lead poisoning too. Oh no! And so because Ridgely. because, and because cars knock- were knocking, that was a justification. <laughs> yeah, engines like would my knock. My car is a little too noisy. Well, and so we're gonna put pe- some lead in there. People were concerned, and like in the advent of cars, you didn't really know why it'd be like. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And Midgley was like, and Midgley was like, knock knock. <laughs> Who's there? Lead poisoning. <laughs> Sorry for the delay. Lead poisoning who? No one. They're, they're dead. Lead, lead poisoning, poisoning everyone. <laughs> but yeah, so Midgley created CFCs that destroyed our atmosphere, and he put lead in gasoline so it could leak in the ground everywhere. Um, <laughs> Man. Yeah, so quite, quite a disappointing legacy for him, um, interestingly enough. So I guess... The concerned listener is wondering, okay, well, what are we doing now besides, like, <laughs> are we still poisoning the world in everything we do? Um, and so the good news is there are different um, refrigerators now. We have safer coolants that work similar to Freon but don't cause a hole in the atmosphere. 
there's a brief period there were actually butane refrigerators. So there would be a small gas flame that would actually bubble out the whatever the heat sinking uh, chemical was. So it would be in the liquid, move to the back part, be gassed out, and then the heat would be lost and it would go back through in a cycle. But you needed an, a constant flame under your refrigerator in order for it to work. <laughs> um, so we, we no longer use CFCs and we no longer use open flame refrigeration, <laughs> which is a relief. Um, but so most refrigerators work on a completely different system nowadays. However, there's a lot of interest in this, what's called Einstein-Sizold refrigeration system. And so in the 2000s, uh, a few Oxford professors were looking into using this type of heat cycle in actually areas that don't have electricity. Um, because the, the beauty of the Einstein fridge is it is so simple that it would rarely break and it doesn't require an external energy source outside of the heat. And so... Um, you could use this for specifically for transporting vaccines. Mm. If you could have a heat block oh, cool. that was flame-based and then keep vaccines at temperature across long, long-distance travel um, in all parts of the world. And so uh, in 2016, William Broadway won the James Dyson Award for a vaccine cooler based on that technology. Not the Tony? <laughs> Broadway won a Tony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Um, so your fact has to do with Einstein, and I've been sitting on an Einstein fact, or I guess an Einstein-related fact for a long time, um, in part because it very tangentially involves my name, and I generally, since I was a kid, like anything that involves my name because I'm self-centered like that, but <laughs> this fact concerns the insane saga of Einstein's brain. So to give you a little taste, although Ew. not quite taste, <laughs> um, you can actually find an article about this story I'm about to tell you on the website Food and Wine. Gross. So just keep that in the back of your head. I was going to say, does white matter come from white grapes? <laughs> <laughs> there is a part of the brain called the red nucleus. So Ooh. maybe that's the part that... That's badass. Maybe that's the part that uh, lets you <laughs> like red wine. I don't know. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um... So Einstein, obviously an uncontested genius, theory of relativity, photoelectric effect, refrigerators apparently, despite this, was a mortal human, so he dies in 1955 at Princeton Hospital, and against his explicit wishes, gets his brain resected by a pathologist named Thomas Harvey. Now Harvey later cleared doing this with Einstein's son, Hans Albert, on the stipulation that the brain be studied and then published about in a well-respected scientific journal, which I guess is a really weird application of the whole better to ask for forgiveness than permission thing, um, but also I would say an ethical gray area applied to gray matter. <laughs> That's an ethical gray matter, yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but uh, not long after doing this, uh, Harvey was fired from his position at Princeton and got a job at UPenn, and once settled into his new lab with Einstein. Einstein's brain in tow, casual, he just brought it with him. Uh, he took a lot of photos and set about dissecting it, which entailed carving out 240 one centimeter cubed blocks and resuspending them in celloidin, which was like a form of cellulose that was used for preservation a lot in those days, um, as well as generating scores of thoroughly annotated slides and then storing these sort of bullion cubes of brain, <laughs> as well as some larger chunks in large <laughs> mason jars. So despite distributing various specimens among leading neuropathologists and neurologists of the day, none of them discovered any remarkable features of Einstein's brain that would explain its remarkable output. Um, so after years of studying and cataloging and lugging around this brain, Harvey had no paper and no recognition to show for it. Until you fast forward about 20 years to 1978, when New Jersey-based reporter Stephen Levy was tasked by his editor with uncovering Einstein's brain's whereabouts because... 
they were just unknown and no one really paid attention to it or thought about it for a while. So he tracked down Harvey from Princeton uh, to Wichita, Kansas, where he was currently living at the time, um, divorced and working at a biological testing lab, but still in possession of the brain, um, (laughs) which he kept, as he revealed to Levy, in those same mason jars under a beer cooler in a box labeled Costa Cider. (laughs) And I did a lot of searching to try and figure out what Costa Cider is or was and turned up absolutely nothing. But I swear I had nothing to do with it. It's an anagram for Einstein. No. (laughs) (laughs) I just did that to see you guys try to work it out for a second. (laughs) Too many cities. (laughs) After our, like, a few episodes ago, my brain is wired to, like, smiley tacos, so I'm like, (laughs) I know it doesn't work. (laughs) But Levy's... I feel like smiley taco is long enough ago that we should probably say that Emily Costa (laughs) is a anagram for smiley taco. I feel like if if you're just joining us, that was very upsetting. (laughs) A bit of a deep cut, I have to say. A taco that smiles back. Um, But uh, Levy's resultant newspaper piece on... Uh, his interview, um, renewed interest in Einstein's brain by neuroanatomists uh, such as Marion Diamond, who requested samples and finally published an observation that his brain had a higher ratio of glial cells to neurons uh, in the association area of the cerebral cortex than average, though these findings have since been contested for various reasons. But the last note that I want to mention, because it's also just as bonkers as the whole cider box thing, in my opinion... So after his famous interview in 1978, uh, Thomas Harvey continued moving around the country with Einstein's brain bits in tow until his death in 2007. And one of these moves was to Lawrence, Kansas in 1988, where he became neighbors and close friends with William S. Burroughs, as in the beat poet and author of Naked Lunch, William S. Burroughs, resulting in Burroughs taking on a habit of bragging to his visitors and friends that he could have a piece of Einstein whenever he wanted. (laughs) So just... So many Gross. weird twists and turns. It's yeah. great. <laughs> Do you guys know that um, the FBI was investigating Albert Einstein for like a really long time? I mean, I didn't. He was I, yeah. basically like because of like, you know, post Manhattan Project when he became like a, you know, disarmament, you know, uh, advocate and a pacifist and a civil rights advocate and just, you know, sort of a proponent of various left wing causes, um, you know. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI was not really down with any of those. Um, (laughs) And they also, I mean, basically, like, they were tapping his phones and opening his mail and rummaging through his garbage for, like, 22 years. Like, every every piece of correspondence in and out, they read. And they, even at some point... (laughs) <laughs> investigated it was the article i read said invested quote investigated tips that he was building a death ray <laughs> so um this is when he was living in new york or connecticut like yeah i i don't know honestly what where <laughs> they thought this death ray was being built but i mean they did a lot of crazy stuff i mean they they thought he was like a soviet spy because he was sort of basically like i think there was some quote where the like hoover's fbi said that liberalism was like a stepping stone to communism mm-hmm. um and so my mom being, says that still <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> J Edna Hoover. <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically, obviously, well, I don't know about obvious. I mean, he, I guess he could have been a Soviet spy, but he, he, he wasn't obviously this was just part of the sort of red scare paranoia. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at the time of Einstein's death in 1955, his FBI file was 1800 pages long. Wow. So they were like, you know, for 22 years, they were just not satisfied by the fact that they were getting nothing. They just sort of imagined Einstein as this like spy master at the center <laughs> of this, you know, huge ring of 
physics <laughs> and <laughs> like <Sure>. CERN. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Oh, boy. I mean, clearly, if you've, you've bitten into the zeitgeist of nowadays, we all know that Einstein was an ice cream eating, bicycle riding, like shorts wearing, like floppy haired mess. And do you know, speaking of things <laughs> that we know about Einstein, like how did Einstein do in math when he was a kid? So buying into that same philosophy, he was a C plus math student. Well, every, basically like the sort of common knowledge stories that Einstein didn't do well in math and yet became one of like the greatest mathematicians, you know, physicists that has ever lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he didn't. He did really well in math. Yeah, I would imagine. And, uh, apparently and he said <laughs> yeah. that he had, he had mastered calculus before the age of 15. Wow. I think it is established that he had developmental delays in terms of learning to talk when he was really little. Um only re- yeah. you know, like what? Like 6 months old? Like or? no, like, like like a toddler. Like yeah. Yeah, he wasn't like he wasn't he didn't start talking until he was three or something like that. But he well, was already integrating. Well, do you know? <laughs> <laughs> which, really, which is more important. Yeah. Do you guys know the story of, um, so there's a joke about this like German family and their kid basically just never started talking. And so they were, you know, really worried at first. And then after a while, it was like, he was fine in every other way. He just didn't say anything. Um, and so they were like, one day eating dinner as a family and they hand over pretz or whatever. They handed him some strudel and he was like, this is delicious. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're like, oh my God, Fritz. I'm not going to do the accent the whole time. <laughs> like, oh, oh my God, I guess best. I am. Oh my God, Fritz. <laughs> like, why are you talking now after all this time? And he says, up until now, everything has been satisfactory. <laughs> <laughs> I have to wonder if the FBI tried to get pieces of Einstein's brain as well, because based on the surveillance, it sounded like they were trying to get inside his head. Oh. Ah. I actually do kind of wonder <laughs> if they tried to get some of his brain. That was also partially serious. <laughs> I mean, it'd be kind of interesting if they were like, the FBI tried to do some sort of like phrenology thing. Like, this is the part of the brain that means you're a communist. <laughs> <laughs> Might be the red nucleus. All right, and all that leaves for us now is this week's quiz. So for the quiz this week, it's all about famous people and inventors who share a name. So that's a famous person and then separately an inventor who have the same last name. Now, can the inventor be famous? Uh, often. So I would say... So that it's a famous inventor it and is... a famous person famous for other things. Yes, and I would and they say... share a last name. Yes. The okay. fame of the inventor is probably the wild card here. Because okay. I was trying to not pull from the list of the most famous inventors. I wanted to get a nice kind of diverse list of inventors and yeah. interesting inventions. Um, so there will be a few names that I almost guarantee you you haven't heard of. Even though I think everyone on this list is putatively famous or putatively amazing at like either the, the how prodigious they were at inventing things or how important their inventions are in everyday life. Okay. Um, Here's the problem, though. While making the quiz, I accidentally thought that I was writing about the same person, so all the clues describe them as if they're one person. Oh, oh no, Rob. And it, I, can't, I can't go back now and fix it. <laughs> but so if I were to say, for an example, this engine inventor was in six Fast and the Furious movies. Uh, oh. Oh, I'm supposed to know that. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, okay. Oh, no. Yeah, oh, Jesus. Oh, I'm glad I rolled with this. It's Jesus. Okay, so think of a guy who's been in six. Of the Rock. The, um, he's been in more, I think. Oh. Also, think of Dwayne a, the Rock Johnson. Think of a famous engine. I've never seen those movies. Oh dear. <laughs> okay. Either. So I was looking for Rudolph and Vin Diesel. 
because Rudolph Diesel invented the diesel engine. I did not know Vin oh. Diesel was in those movies. He was only yeah, in six same. of them, so. Oh. <laughs> oh, six. Okay. Which is like less than a third of the Fast and the Furious franchise. This this does not bode well. No, it really doesn't. Yeah, I'm afraid. I'm very afraid. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> um, so you have to get both people's names. However, since several of them since several of them are pretty obscure, I think we'll give a lot of partial credit. Uh, if you can identify one full first and last name of every okay. couple. All right. Okay. Makes sense. And, okay. So question number one. This lyric soprano also discovered penicillin. Well, that's Fleming. Alexander Renee Fleming. Fleming. Yes. Nice. Renee Teamwork. and Alexander Fleming. Yes. There we go. All right. Cool. Um, so yeah, Alexander <laughs> Fleming discovered penicillin when a fungus grew in his bacteria plates and killed it. Renee Fleming may have used penicillin because <laughs> she lived after that point. Um <laughs> But yeah, she was a famous lyric soprano. Is is a famous yeah, lyric soprano. Not dead. <laughs> Last not dead. I checked. Yes. Woo. Still fairly active. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, question two. Did you know that Jesse from Breaking Bad made guitars? Uh, Les Paul and Jesse. And Paul. Uh, Who's this? Paul oh, somebody Paul? Yes, it is Paul. Uh, psh, uh, no. N- Nick. No. Well, Paul. Paul is the name. Yes. So you got uh, Les Paul. What's his name? So Les Paul is the guitar Les maker. Les guitar for sure. Aaron Paul. Paul, yeah, super close. Alan Paul. No, no, no. It's Aaron Paul. It's totally. It's definitely Aaron Paul. It's Aaron Paul. Thought <laughs> <laughs> it was Alan. I mean, I know, Excuse I know. You. We just spent like five minutes trying to figure it out, but now that I've heard it, I'm sure that it's Aaron Paul. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 I'm gonna defer to you there. Um, <laughs> yeah, Aaron Paul. <laughs> oh, Aaron Paul. Yeah. Less, less than Aaron Paul. Nice. So, Good job, Emily. Yeah. I think I should get an extra point for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Les Paul making the Les Paul line of guitars. And Aaron Paul on AMC's Breaking Bad. Yep. Very cool. Okay, question number three. He probably thought up Google while he was playing the guitar solo on Stairway. Well, is the inventor of Google Sergey Brin? That's one of them. Uh, Larry Page. Yes. And so who's the other Page? Jimmy Page. There we go. Okay, Jimmy Page um, and Larry Page. Yeah. Oh, wait, Larry Page is yeah. Google? Oh, yes, good. that's it. We're, we're just each getting half. Yes. Perfectly. I'm, this is perfect great. Teamwork. <laughs> this, is, this is how I hoped it would work out in the best case scenarios. <laughs> this is really wonderful. All right, all right. Okay, question number four. She inherited the Moonrise Kingdom for inventing the internally controlled windshield wiper. Inherited. Now, is, is Moonrise Kingdom a movie? Wes Anderson. Yeah, yes. so mm-hmm. is it just Anderson? Did but Hans Christian sh- Andersen invent the windshield wiper? <laughs> yes. No. But wait, are you? Is this in reference to the actor who plays the character in the film? Wait. No. So, um, so Wes Anderson just uh, is the Moonrise Kingdom tie. Okay. Um, but then Good. there is a woman who invented the windshield wiper, and so let me tell you for a second about Mary Elizabeth Anderson. Please do. All right. So she was an American real estate developer, rancher. An inventor of the windshield wiper blade. Um, but do you know what year she invented the windshield wiper in? Uh, 1810. For? Before cars? <laughs> yeah, they were horse and buggies. <laughs> Did they have windshields? <laughs> I feel like the Actually, windshield probably... Actually, the horses probably... back then had little visors. Was I, just... <laughs> I, the thing is, I think windshields prob- could at least have predated the car because the original cars went way slower than horses could. I guess that's a fair point. I mean, I don't know that that's true, but... I, I was impressed mm-hmm. by how early it was, but it, it is later than 1810 by a considerable margin. 1819? Um, so, in <laughs> 1903... <laughs> okay. All right. 
1903, Anderson was granted her first patent of many uh, for an automatic car window cleaning device that could be controlled from the inside, which she called a windshield wiper. Previously, there just had to be somebody on the hood <laughs> moving it back and forth. Well, literally, there used to you'd keep a squeegee in your window, and if and you, you were driving, you would get your arm around. Yeah. <laughs> On the highway. Yes, going at like six miles <laughs> an hour. <laughs> All right. Uh, question number five. This man, heralded as the Black Edison, may have used some of his 60 patents to help him win the Masters this year. Who won the Masters this year? How many golfers can you name? Tiger Woods. That's about all I can do. And I'm out. (laughs) The good news here is that you actually know the golfer because I constructed it based on you not knowing anything about golf. You know it so well. (laughs) Is it Tiger Woods? Tiger Tiger Woods. Woods. So Tiger Woods is the golfer and Granville Woods uh, was an absolutely prolific 1800s inventor uh, and one one of the the probably most patented or most patent wielding African Americans in U.S. history for a very long time. Mm. Cool. Um, what were some of his inventions? He, so he worked in radio and technology. He, like I said, a mechanical and electrical engineer. So a lot of small devices, tweaks of existing patents, but a lot of it was in electronic, like early electronic communication. All right. Question number six. While being a 1940s Hollywood star, she invented the technology that led to Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Hedy Lamar. And released an album about <laughs> pimping a butterfly. Yeah, that's Kendrick it. Lamar. Yeah, here we go. Eddie Lamar and Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought this would be tricky because the whole first part is one person, a 1940s yeah. Hollywood star and inventor of technology. Yeah. But yeah, Hedy Lamar. Yeah, she's great. So, Ab- yeah. Absolutely amazing story. <laughs> um, so do you know who she co-patented that technology with? I do not. Uh, I forget his name. He was a composer, like a musician. Like just people oh, trying to help cool. out during the war. Yeah, just super random experts in radio technology. Um, but yeah. Okay, question number seven. I guess it was his fame for inventing the World War One gas mask and the traffic light that got him a spot on 30 Rock. Is it... Okay, sure. is it Tracy Morgan? It is. Oh, is the okay. 30 Rock mm-hmm. comedian. Um, so somebody Morgan... Yeah, and I'll tell you, I remember this person, um, like, we, we learned about him when I was a kid during Black History Month as, like, one of the kind of unsung black inventors in U.S. history. Um, and he also has, like, a pretty impressive list of inventions, but, like, the, the tricolor traffic light was the mm. one that I always remembered, like, as a child. Huh. Uh, for many people, it's Garrett Morgan, the inventor. Mm. Yeah, so Garrett and All Tracy right. Morgan. Now we know. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, and we're on to our eighth and final question already. Uh, so this question... Coaching Hoosiers basketball for 30 years, he probably had to brown bag a few drinks. Luckily, he invented the flat-bottomed brown paper bag. <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking out. on that. Indiana Sports coach. and arcane trivia. Oh, God. God. I just need a, I need a second. Paper oh, bag. Bobby Knight yes. is the Indiana coach. That's I finally thought of that. Um, Very nice, yeah. And then, I, well, the brown paper bag was invented by somebody Knight. Yeah. And um, Robbie Knight? <laughs> So <laughs> Robbie and Bobby. So this inventor is a woman, and actually, according to Wikipedia, Bobby she she may be quote the most famous nineteenth century woman inventor. Ada Lovelace. No, you'd think. Wow. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Who is Byron's daughter? Yes. Just a little callback to this, own, this oh, episode. Yeah, oh yeah, Byron showing up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this this name was not immediately familiar to me. Nineteenth century inventor. Yes. Can you yes. give me some of the things this person invented? <laughs> the subtitles would just be the sound of typing. Clickety clack. So she she is most. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. 
Because it says that she has been called the most famous 19th century woman inventor. But if you look at her Wikipedia page, it has born, died, nationality, occupation, inventor, known for inventing the brown paper bag. (laughs) None of that surprises me. That is the keystone. That is is everything. Okay, but um, career, later life and legacy. Okay, patents. Uh, Improved paper feeding machines, uh, paper bag machines, sole cutting for shoes, reels, like fishing reels, uh, uh, numbering mechanisms for printing, uh, for stitching, window frame with a sash. Wow, okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's weird the things that you choose to be impressed by, which ones you choose. (laughs) Oh, wow, a sash. Wow. That's nice. You sound like Owen Wilson. You're like, oh, wow. Oh, I was hearing Linda Belcher, but okay. (laughs) Bobby. Bobby Knight. Also, this is a good one. My brain, for some reason, just went to window with the sash, with the sash. (laughs) (laughs) The coal club was looking at her through the window. (laughs) Also. (laughs) To the window. (laughs) (laughs) and i'll I'll blame the patriarchy for this but they listed all those things first and then at the bottom she has patents for rotary engines and internal combustion engines (laughs) they're on a slightly different level of invention all right so Um, this is this is the last name is knight yes yes well i feel bad yeah (laughs) i knew ada lovelace it's it's Appropriately emblematic. And so I, I imagine many people don't know the name Margaret Eloise Knight. No, but I do yeah. know that her name means pearl. Yeah. Mar- margarita facts. <laughs> margarita facts from the last episode, yeah. Ugh, wasting away on margarita facts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, very nice, guys. You've completed my quiz. <laughs> Woo! We did better than expected. All right, and thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to check out more content, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at FaxMachinePod and on Facebook at FaxMachinePodcast. And you can find us on social media. I'm at SweaterVestSCI. Noah. At Arcs and Sciences. And Emily. At underscore E.M. Costa. Be sure to drop us a line if you have any facts that you think would be fun to talk about on the show. We'd love to hear them. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyberson, Emily Costa, and A.C. Antonelli, with editing by Noah Guyberson. Sound engineering and theme music are by A.C. Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.